Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our associate care pastor, Joshua Masters, kicks off a two-week series about how we respond to God's calling. If you want to watch this week's message and listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can find that and much more on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you as you walk with Christ. If more of you means less of me, take everything. Those are beautiful lyrics, but do we mean them? Is that true in our hearts? Today we're concluding our two-week mini-series entitled Respond. And the question that we've been asking is, how do I respond to the promises of God? Do we live a life focused on ourselves or do we live a life of mission and purpose? So what does a 20-foot cell phone have to do with mission and purpose? Uh, we talked about this last week, but you know that good feeling that you get when you're texting someone and, and the three little dots show up telling you that they're about to respond to you. That feels good, right? And that's the best representation of responding in our culture. But what we need to recognize is that God gets excited when we respond to him. He has sent us great and glorious promises. And he gets excited when he sees that we are about to respond to him. So as God's messages and his promises appear on this giant cell phone, I want us to think, how are we going to respond? How will we respond to these promises? If we want to live a life that is set apart for the purposes of God, It requires us to seek a life that is different from the way that the world lives. We can't live the same way that the world does if we want to fulfill the purpose that God has in our life. And Peter tells us how in this letter that we've been looking at, in his dying words of encouragement and instruction to the church. We've been looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, so you can go ahead and turn or swipe there in your Bibles. It's way in the back of your Bible or at the bottom of your scroll. It's on page 981 if you're using the Bible available at Brookwood, 981. And if you remember from last week, this list of Christian character traits that we're looking at are virtues that we should be continually growing in, not for the sake of being good, but to prepare us for the mission of the church. In verse 8, if you remember very starkly told us that if we are not continually growing in these aspects of the Christian life, then our life will be unproductive and unfruitful in our experience with God. Do we want to live a life that is productive and fruitful? Yes? Let's look at 2 Peter 1 again. Let's review verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Remember last week we talked about how the word know here really means experience. Experience. 
So we receive the ability to live a useful, productive, godly, fruitful life by experiencing God. And we continue in verse 4. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Do you grasp the significance of that verse? The promises of God enable us to share in the divine nature of Jesus Christ and escape the world's corruption caused by our own human desires. Out of the Holy Spirit's power and intervention, we will always be ruled by our own selfish desires. Outside of the intervention of the Holy Spirit, we will always be ruled by our own desires, our own selfishness, because our natural tendency is sin. James explains the human condition like this. Each person who is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires, our own evil desires, and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. That's how James describes the human condition. See, we want to believe that deep down inside, mankind will do the right thing at the end of the day. We want to believe that we'll do the right thing at the end of the day, but we won't. It's not in our nature. We desire selfishness. One of the books that had a huge impact on me when I was younger, and still does to this day, is The Diary of a Young Girl, written by Anne Frank. The Diary of Anne Frank from World War II. It is filled with hope and optimism. It's filled with hope, even though her family was running from the greatest evil this world has seen. Their family were running from the Nazis. And she writes with optimism and hope. And probably the most famous quote from that diary is when Anne is talking about holding on to her ideals and she says this, I still believe, in spite of everything, that people are truly good at heart. It's beautiful. And I love Anne Frank. But it's not true. We want it to be true. I want it to be true, but it's not. The belief that mankind can be inherently good at heart is the same belief that enables us to walk through most days as if we don't need God. It waters down the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to believe that mankind is inherently good when history has taught us, when our own lives have taught us that we're not. It waters down what Christ did to think that we can be good on our own. Our hope is not in the elusive goodness of mankind. It's in the eternal goodness of God. Left to our own choices, we will always choose pleasure over integrity. We will always choose power over sacrifice. And I'm not saying this to discourage us. I don't want us to be discouraged. I'm saying it so that we might get just a glimmer of how important this verse is. Verse 4, telling us that we can share in the divine nature of Christ. 
because we can make a difference in this world. We can reach out to the broken. We can right wrongs. We can be a beacon of light to a world that's filled with darkness, but only when we stop relying on ourselves and start living in the divine nature that Christ has offered us. But how is that even possible? How is it possible for us to share in the divine nature of God? We go back to basics. We can share in the divine nature because Jesus gave up his divine privileges. Philippians 2. He gave up his divine privileges and was born a human being and he humbled himself to death on a cross on our behalf. Without the cross, we cannot live the kind of life that's described in this passage. We can't even stand before God, let alone share in the divine nature of God. Christ took our place in judgment so that we could wear his righteousness and share in his divine nature, rescuing us while maintaining the Father's holiness. Tozer, in the Attributes of God, said this about this passage. Without compromising himself in any way, God now receives the returning sinner, and catch this, puts a deposit of his own nature and life into that sinner. That's what the new birth is. That's being born again, and he continues. It's not joining a church. It's not being baptized. It's not quitting this or that bad habit, though every person will quit his bad habit. The new birth is an implantation of divine life. In us that has no goodness, he deposits the divine nature. That's being born again. That's what gives us the ability to respond to God's promises with a godly life because the greatest of his promises is salvation through grace, new life through the blood of Christ. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that glorious gift? We return to verse 5 through 7 in our text. Verse 5. In view of all this, Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, patient endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, love for everyone. We covered the first four in that list last week. And if you weren't here, I want to encourage you, go online, listen to it, watch it online or in the Brookwood Church app. But for now, let's just write down what those four were. And you, there's no fill-ins for this. Just put it somewhere in your notes. First, we seek to grow in moral excellence. This is what we covered last week. And moral excellence is about courageously living a life that's different from the world so that we can draw broken people to Christ. We also grow in knowledge as we experience God and we meditate on his word, and that's about learning his character. We grow in knowledge. And then we grow in self-control because the enemy and our own flesh will try to tempt us away from the purpose and the mission that God has for us in life. 
And then finally, we grow in patient endurance, facing trials and hardship with the hope of Jesus Christ so that a broken world can see the difference that Christ makes in our life. Those first four traits that we talked about last week more in depth are the inward changes that we seek in response to God's promises. And last week we talked about how growing in these traits is our training, the things that prepare us to fulfill the mission of the church. And the last three traits of Christian character that we're going to talk about today are the outward expressions of those inward changes. They are the action steps for us to fulfill the mission of the church. These three things are the action steps for us to fulfill the mission of the church. Now, last week I used that phrase, mission of the church, multiple times, and several people came up to me and asked, they said, how would you define the mission of the church if that's what we're supposed to be doing? So that's a fair question. The mission of the church and therefore the mission of every individual believer is threefold. It's threefold. And those three things are embodied in our three character traits that remain. But if you promise not to leave, I will give you the whole sermon in a nutshell right now. But you can't leave. Ushers, guard the doors. But this is the whole thing in the nutshell. Our last three traits and the mission of the church. The mission of the church is this. Number one, to glorify God. That is the most important thing in our life, and it is what Jesus put above everything else when he was here on earth. Glorify the Father. Number two, to train, build up, and invest in other believers. To train, build up, and invest in other believers. And the third part of our mission is to bring the hope of Christ to a broken world. If we are not doing all three of those we are not fulfilling the mission of the church. We're not fulfilling what God has called us to do. Our lives should revolve around these three goals. And you may recognize these themes from the words that are on the front of your program every single week. Communicate with God. Connect with Christians. Care for others. But this threefold mission of the church enters our life, becomes part of who we are, as we grow in these last three character traits that Peter teaches us about. So we pick up where we left off last week in the middle of chapter 2, verse 6. No, chapter 1, 2 Peter, lots of numbers. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 6. And supplement, supplement is implied from the earlier part of the verse, and supplement patient endurance with godliness. Supplement patient endurance with godliness. Now, this is an interesting word that this appears here, godliness, because the entire list of Christian virtues is all about living a godly life, right? Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, patient endurance, those are all related to living the godly life described in verse 3. So then why is godliness listed by itself in the list? Why does it appear on its own again? Because of what the word means. Because this word is not about our behavior. It's about the condition of our heart. It's not about how we live. It's about how we approach God. The Greek word for godliness implies that we should come before him with reverence and honor 
It implies our loyalty and how we come before God with adoration and how we adore him and how we come before him with praise. What does that sound like? Worship. In fact, the best translation of this word might not be godliness because it can also be translated true worship. True worship. So your first fill-in, we respond to God's promises by continually growing in godliness through true worship. Mission objective number one, bring glory to God. Bring glory to the Father. Do we approach God with reverence? Do we approach Him with a heart of true worship? Because the American church has all but lost its reverence for God. We've all but lost our reverence for the power and the majesty of who God is. We embrace the grace of God, but most of us have lost the fear of the Lord. And yes, God is love. He is the definition of love. But we should come before him with a healthy fear of his power and his holiness, remembering who he is working out our salvation in fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. But because we have lost that sense of reverence for God, most of us don't truly worship God because they're connected. If we don't truly revere God's power, we won't truly worship Him. This is a difficult truth. But let's be honest. In the American church, the definition many Christians have for the word worship is the 20-minute part of a Sunday service where I park my car or get my coffee or chat or check my phone or organize my stuff. Worship is about giving glory to God. But when we put things ahead of our worship, what we're really doing is glorifying ourselves. But just being in the room isn't worship either. Are you engaging God in worship? Are you expecting to hear from God? Last week we said that the church is a training ground for the mission of the church, and that is absolutely true. But it's also the place that we come together to worship together. There is power in corporate prayer. There is power in corporate worship. We should arrive early every week expecting to hear from God, expecting that God is going to say something to us long before the message ever begins. Are we willing to put aside our other priorities and make God's majesty foremost in our day again? Let's return to a place of reverence. Next week, we're going to have a morning of worship. The whole morning is going to be worship and the Lord's Supper. We're going to come before God, open our hearts, seek an encounter with him through song and praise. But I want you to understand this isn't a concert. We're not doing this to be a concert. This is an exclamation point. It's an exclamation point at the end of our studies on experiencing God and responding to his promises. Are you willing 
to come with a heart prepared for worship next week? I'll wait for an answer. Are you willing to come expecting to hear from God? Because the attitude that we have in worship makes a difference in every aspect of our life. It's not just 20 minutes on a Sunday. It affects everything in our lives. Look at Paul's instructions to Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.8, he said, While bodily training is of some value, godliness, true worship, true worship is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The way we approach God holds promise for both the current life and for eternity. It affects our attitude. It affects our purpose and our mission. Look at 1 Chronicles 16. This is such an important verse. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Don't miss the significance of this verse. Because it ties our ability to proclaim the gospel to our state of worship. If we are unable to express the joy of Christ in a broken world, it may be because we don't have the joy of worship in our own lives. And I'm not just talking about Sunday morning. Worship goes beyond Sunday morning. It goes beyond singing. It should be a lifestyle. It should be in every action, in every thought. It sounds cliche, but Christians should live their lives with a song in their heart, a life song. But instead, many of us walk through life with grumbling in our heart, not a song. We've got to seek God to change that. When God sent Israel into battle, you know who marched at the head of the army? The worship leaders. The worship leaders led the way. And when we're facing spiritual battle, we should march into it with worship leading the way. But we have to train for it. We train for it together here. We're called to live a life of continual worship and reverence in relationship with God. True worship will change your perspective about every circumstance. And when we live a life of worship, it will also affect how we relate to every other person that we come in contact with. Look at James 1.27. Pure and genuine religion, and again, religion also can be translated as worship. So pure and genuine worship in the sight of God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. James 1.27. It affects how we view other people and how we help other people. JC talked about that during the welcome. And that leads us to the last two character traits because they're both related to how we relate to others. Verse 7. Verse 7. And supplement godliness with brotherly affection. Supplement godliness with brotherly affection. So we respond to God's promises by number two, growing in brotherly affection. Growing and continually growing in brotherly affection. Mission objective number two, train, build up, and invest in other believers. Train, build up, and invest in other believers. But we can only do that if we truly love one another. 
and we treat each other like we love one another. Brotherly affection. And this Greek word, I know that we have done a lot more talking about the Greek meaning of words in this series than usual, but it's so important to understand this list of seven things. But this word for brotherly affection is a Greek word that everybody can learn. Anybody know what it is? It's not agape, but hold on to that. It's Philadelphia. So we say it together, Philadelphia on three. One, two, three. Philadelphia. You are all speaking Greek. That is very good. And Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love. Yes, the word Philadelphia was used in Greek culture to describe a healthy love expressed between close family members. A healthy love expressed between close family members. But Peter is expanding that to emphasize the relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ. He's emphasizing that close relationship among believers. We are called to love one another in a different way, in a way that makes the world take notice. Look what Jesus said. Jesus said, now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Do you catch that? The way that we treat one another is supposed to be the primary way that a broken world identifies who a Christian is. Are we loving one another in that way? Does the compassion and the kindness that we show one another out in public actually startle people? How can they love each other that much? How can they be that good to one another? Are we drawing people to Jesus Christ just by the way they see us interact with one another? Listen, believers have got to stop beating one another up and start building up one another. We have to stop judging each other and start helping each other. We need to stop blaming each other and start supporting each other. We need to stop saying, what do I get? And start saying, what do you need? What do you need? Gossip, backbiting, unforgiveness, undermining leadership, they're all prevalent in the church, but they have no place in the body of Christ. We don't talk about it much in the modern church because we've largely abandoned this, but Scripture tells us in three, Titus 3.10 that if someone is causing division in the church, warn them twice, and then the body of Christ should have nothing to do with them. Matthew 18 tells us that if one believer is sinning against another believer, then we go to them with compassion. We try to help them right the ship. But it also says if they refuse that correction, that they should be removed from the church. They should be removed from fellowship. It in fact says they should be treated like a pagan. Why? Because sin against one another and division in the church are poison to the mission of the church. It's a cancer. It kills what we're supposed to be doing as a body. It is vital that we build a healthy community and then engage in that community. 
How are we strengthening one another in our spiritual growth? Are we in a small group? Are we in a ministry with other people? But more importantly, are we meeting together outside of the church to sharpen one another? That's the key because the organized church is not the answer you are. Are we meeting together outside of the church? Are we challenging one another to a deeper faith? Hebrews says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. So again, we operate from God's promises. And then it says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. We must learn to put others before ourselves and love our brothers and sisters. We have to take off our masks. We have to stop being we have to start being honest and stop trying to hide our secrets. We have to be able to ask for help when we need help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Love one another. But we're not just called to love other believers. Let's continue in verse 7. About halfway through verse 7. And supplement brotherly affection with love for everyone. Number three, we respond to God's promises by growing in love for everyone. And that's mission objective three. Bring the hope of Christ to a broken world. But we can only do that with love. We can't do that with hateful Facebook posts. We can't do it with arguing. We do it only with love. And this is very important to understand. The words that are used in this passage for brotherly love and love for everyone are not the same word. They're not the same word. The word Peter uses to describe our relationship to one another is Philadelphia. The word Peter uses to describe love for everyone, including especially non-believers, is agape, what my brother said earlier. Agape is the word used to describe God's perfect love for us. It means a sacrificial, unselfish love, a love that always puts me second. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. What are you willing to sacrifice to introduce someone to Jesus? What are you willing to sacrifice so that God can show you someone that he wants to bring into the kingdom? Are you willing to leave the walls of this church and find the people that this world has rejected? Are you willing to leave the walls of this church and find the people that the church has rejected? Because that is our mission. Christ, when he was on earth, ministered to two types of people, believers and people who would become believers. 
and those who rejected him. That's really three types. But when he healed believers, they usually came to him, and Scripture usually says that they were healed according to their faith. But the second group, the second group of people were non-believers. And in nearly every case, Christ went to them. And in nearly every case, Scripture uses the word compassion to describe why Jesus went to them. Jesus went to them. He had compassion. He met their needs. And they became believers. And we have the exact same calling. We have the exact same calling. We are to go to them. We are to show compassion. We are to meet their needs. And then watch God make them believers. Sharing in the divine nature means sharing in the same passion Christ has. And Christ's passion is for the lost and for the broken and for the needy. We come in here every week and we're so comfortable. But we need to find that same consuming compassion for people in our hearts that Christ had and that he still has. And do you know how you'll know when you have found that passion? You'll know that you have that passion when being inconvenienced to help someone means more to you than not being inconvenienced. The Greek word agape that's used here for love literally means, if you literally translate it, it means a feast of love. A feast of love. That means showing compassion to the people that you once believed didn't deserve your compassion becomes your sustenance. It becomes your food. It becomes the thing that keeps you moving forward. Because you see the work that God is doing. And you want to be part of it. You'll stop waiting for people to come to you and you'll go find the people who need compassion. You'll walk into a room or a store or a meeting looking for the person who needs encouragement. God invites us to be part of the work he's doing in the lives of other people. Are you intentional about looking for those opportunities? More importantly, are you desperate to hear his invitation to let you work in the life of someone else, let him work in someone else's life through you? Are you desperate to hear that invitation? And if you say, God never seems to show me opportunities to impact the life of non-believers, then you have to understand that the entire New Testament says that he will. So if we're not seeing those opportunities, if we're not hearing that invitation, it's either because we're not listening, we've isolated ourselves from non-believers in church activities so that there's no one to witness to, or we're not living a life that would make any difference if they met us. That's what this list of seven Christian character traits is all about. They're about growing in a way that prepares us to make a difference for the kingdom. God doesn't need us. He invites us. 
Romans 12.1 says this. It says, therefore I urge you. The NLT says, I plead with you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And when it says bodies, it means the whole self. Submit your whole self to be a living sacrifice. And when we look at this verse in Romans 12, we usually focus on the word sacrifice. But what's different here from anywhere else in Scripture or from the Old Testament? God has always asked his followers for a sacrifice. That is not new. The idea of giving God a sacrifice is not new. It's from the very beginning. What is different here, what is new here, is the word living. And I used to think, I used to think that that word living just meant that I didn't need to be physically sacrificed like the lamb. But I realize now that the living is the sacrifice. Surrendering our desires to a life of purpose and mission. Living is the sacrifice. We can be an army of God's compassion and hope to a broken world. We can be part of God transforming this community. But we have to start glorifying God in worship. We need to love one another better. And we need to start loving those that we disagree with. For our final point, I'm going to ask the choir to come back out. And I'm going to tell you why. Come on out, choir, and our worship team. And as they come out, I want you to think about the fact that these men and women represent our church. It is filled with people of different ages and different races, different socioeconomic groups, different political backgrounds. They were raised somewhere else. They have different backgrounds. But they come together to sing one song in one voice. They come together to worship God in unity with a singular purpose. We are one body. We are part of this choir. Brookwood Church is a choir that sings a song of mission to Christ. We can be a people of mission. We can be a people of purpose. We can be a church that makes such a difference in Greenville County that an unbelieving people can no longer not deny that there's a God. But we have to stop living for ourselves. We have to come second to what God wants to do in our lives. Do you want to be part of that? Do you want to live a different kind of life? One of my favorite songs it's Life Song by Casting Crowns. And some of the lyrics go like this. This is the second verse. Lord, I give my life a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1. To reach a world in need and to be your hands and feet. So may the words that I say and the things that I do Make a life song sing that brings a smile to you. And then it says, I want to sign your name to the end of this day. 
knowing that my heart was true. Let my life song sing to you. We have a choice. We have a choice. At the end of each day, you can sign God's name because you chose to live in the divine nature, glorifying God, loving your brothers and sisters, reaching out to a broken world. Or we can sign our own name because we decided to live for ourselves. Are you willing to make it your prayer to sign his name to the end of the day? Are you willing? Then if you are willing, let's stand. And if you're willing, rather than just sing this song, make the lyrics your prayer. And as we sing together, I'm going to ask our care volunteers to come to the front of the stage, and they're also going to be in the care connection room. If you feel that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and you need someone to pray with you, they're going to be here. If, even if you want to come during the song, that's okay, or after. But seek people to encourage you. Don't be afraid to ask for help. We are one choir. We are one voice. We have one mission. Let's surrender ourselves in worship. Do you want to sign your own name to the end of each day? Or do you want to sign his name? Our final verses from this passage are verses 8 and 9. And they say this. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted and blind. They have forgotten that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten what we've been saved from? Because if we remember how we've been restored, if we remember what we've been rescued from, then we will develop a passion for caring for one another. And we will develop a consuming compassion for the broken as we reach out to them. Let's live a different kind of life, Brookwood. Let's be willing to be an army of God's compassion and watch what he does. Father God, we are not worthy to be your representatives. We're not worthy to represent you. We're not worthy to speak your name. But because of your grace and your love and your compassion, you deposit into us the divine nature. You allow us to be part of the story that you are writing in other people's lives, and that is miraculous. So I pray, Lord, that you would shake us that you would convict us, that yes, you would send the Holy Spirit to comfort, but that you would send the Holy Spirit to convict us to live different kinds of lives, to be an impactful force for you in our community and in our nation and with one another. Teach us how to be like you. 
Teach us how to love like you. Teach us how to worship you. In the name of Christ, amen. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 to get into contact with our Connections team. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.